Well, it is very fitting that we should on this first Sunday, first Lord's Day of the new year, return to our study of this magisterial book of Romans, the sixth book in the New Testament, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And since it has been several weeks since our last study, I want to take just a minute and kind of refresh your minds and set the context a little bit for the passage that we'll be looking at from the 11th chapter. We began our study of Romans three years ago, as Don mentioned, with the understanding that uh, this is the closest thing we have from the Apostle Paul to a systematic theology. Uh, This, we might say, is his magnum opus. Uh, This is the book that he spent three months putting together in order to address the needs of a church that he had never visited. He himself did not plant, but he greatly esteemed and loved. In our last study, we noted that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the last doctrinal section of this letter. And in that section, Paul is explaining God's purposes for the Jewish people and how Jewish and Gentile Christians are to live together in the church, how they are to relate to one another. As you probably know, in the first century, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles were, was problematic. Uh, those relationships between those two different ethnic groups, they were filled with tensions, filled with animosity. The ethnic hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile presented some special challenges for the early Christian movement because God saved people from both the Israelite background as well as from the Gentile background, and many of those early churches had members from both backgrounds within them. That was certainly true of the church at Rome. Most likely, the church at Rome was started by Jewish Christians that had left Rome and went to Jerusalem for Pentecost during that time when the Holy Spirit came in power after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. In AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius issued an edict that all the Jews in Rome had to be expelled. They could no longer live there. And so Jewish Christians from this church had to be expelled. Acts chapter 18 verse 2 records how Paul met some of the Jewish Christian members from the church at Rome in the city of Corinth because of that edict. Now this would have required in the church at Rome, for the Gentile Christians to assume leadership because all of the Jewish Christians had gone. Five years later, after Claudius died, that ban was lifted and Jews began to return to the city. And Paul writes this letter two or three years after the ban was lifted. And so no doubt now we have Jewish Christians who had been in the church and been exiled for five years or so returning to the church. And you can understand that it's a volatile situation. It's, it's fraught with potential disruption and disunity. There are no doubt many questions about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and God's purposes for the Jews. Since everyone, both Jew and Gentile, can only be saved by grace, what should we think of Jewish people? What should we, how should we regard the Israelites? In Paul's day, as is true today, most of them were not trusting Jesus, the Savior, from God. They rejected Jesus 
as their Messiah. So the question would normally be asked, and Paul takes it up in this chapter 11 of Romans. Does God have a purpose for Israel? Is there a future for the Jewish people? Should we even think about the Jewish people as a people group at all? Well, Paul takes up the question in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, and he does so by helping us understand from the Old Testament scriptures themselves that God does indeed have a purpose for Jewish people, but not in the way that most first century Jews anticipated. A key verse in this whole section is verse 6 of chapter 9, where Paul explains how the Jewish people misunderstood what God was doing by choosing them as his old covenant people. He says there, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Though the Israelites had largely rejected God's way of salvation in Christ, God's saving purposes still has a place for them. Paul makes this crystal clear in chapter 11. In verses 1 through 10 of that chapter, he says that God has not totally rejected his old covenant people. And Paul himself was exhibit A of this. Paul was very much a Jewish man, a a Jew among Jews. And yet here he is, a Christian Jew, writing this letter to the church at Rome. There were other Christians who came to faith out of their Jewish background. And so the point is, in those first 10 verses, that God's rejection of Israel is not total because there were Christians among them. But then the apostle goes on to acknowledge that God's rejection of the Israelites is not final. Yes, as a people, they have stumbled, but they're not beyond recovery. And that's verses 11 through 24. In our last study, we started looking at those verses, at Paul's argument as he zeroes in on it in verses 11 through 15. And I made the point from those verses in our last study that we have reason to expect a great revival that will come in the future that will sweep many Jewish people from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ, thereby adding them to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I take that from verse 15, as well as verse 12. Verse 15, Paul writes, For if their rejection, speaking of the Jews, means the reconciliation of the world, for the world, that means the Gentile people, people who are not Jews, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the failure of the Jews, largely to believe the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, resulted in the world, the Gentiles being reconciled to God, how much more will their acceptance mean for the Gentile world? As he puts it in verse 12, how much more will their full inclusion result in life from the dead? You see, the the Jewish people, as you read the book of Acts, you see this illustrated, rejected by and large the message of salvation. So we discover when Paul went to one city, he would go to the synagogue and he'd preach the gospel to the Jews and they would reject it and say, I'll go to the Gentiles. This was God's way of getting the gospel to the whole world. And Paul says, if that way resulted in the salvation of Gentiles, how much more will result in the salvation of the world 
when the Jews are brought back by this life from the dead, which I take to mean a great revival. God's rejection of Israel is not final. Today we want to continue looking at the way Paul builds this case in his argument, starting in verse 16 of Romans 11. In verse 16 of Romans 11, Paul introduces two metaphors or analogy to prove his point, as well as to provide a warning and then to promise a future. So take a copy of God's word and open it up before you and follow along as I begin reading from Romans chapter 11. Our text is verses 16 through 24. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find this on page 947 of that Bible. But in order that we might get a better flow of Paul's argument, I want to begin reading not at verse 16, but back up to verse 11 and continue down through verse 24. So follow along as I read aloud the word of God. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their trespass, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then beginning in verse 16, which we'll focus on now. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? God has not finally rejected Israel. There is a future in store for that old covenant people. In verses 16 and 17, Paul highlights the fact that Israel has a gracious history. We might say a glorious history. He does this by way of two analogies. The first analogy has to do with a lump of dough that is offered up as first fruits. That's the very first part of verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now, this was a familiar custom among Israelites, and Paul's readers would have understood this. 
it was a practice of offering up the first of a lump of what would become bread in order to signify that the whole process, the whole lump would belong to God. Specifically, what Paul seems to have in mind here is Numbers chapter 15, where this responsibility is spelled out. Let me read to you in verse 20 and 21 of Numbers 15. Moses instructs the people of God of the first of the first your dough of your dough. You shall present a loaf as a contribution. Verse 20, some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution through your generations. It was an expression of the first fruits. Moses instructed the Israelites to give the first fruits of their dough as a testimony, an acknowledgement that everything that has been placed in their hands belongs to the Lord. The first fruits was set apart to the Lord as holy, dedicated to him, meaning that the whole lump is holy, set apart and dedicated to him as well. That's the first analogy. That's the first metaphor. The second one has to do with root and branches of a tree. Look at verse 16, the latter part. It says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, Paul takes this analogy and he expands it all the way through verse 24. The point he's making with this analogy is the same that he made with the first analogy of first fruits. If the beginning was set apart from God, then everything that comes from that beginning likewise is holy or set apart or designed for God. Now, what Paul is referring to is the very beginning of God's gracious work among the Jews. Specifically, he's referring to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. When God determined to have a people for himself, he chose a Gentile. He chose Abraham. And the first Jew was a Gentile. There was nothing distinguishing about Abraham that caused God to look upon him with favor, but rather God in his grace chose him and then his offspring after him to be set aside as his old covenant beginning of his people. These patriarchs represent the root of God's chosen people on earth. That's particularly true of Abraham. So we've already seen it in chapter 4 of Romans where Paul refers to Abraham as our forefather according to the flesh. And this is a very common teaching throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from whence you were hewn and to the quarry from whence you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. The rock from whence they were hewn was Abraham. The quarry from which they were dug was Abraham. The the tree came from the root of Abraham and Abraham's son and grandson. Paul is explaining the way that God unfolded his saving purpose throughout history. He began with Abraham giving to Abraham great promises of salvation by grace that would come to him and his offspring by grace through faith. So Abraham, together with Isaac, his grandson Jacob, represents the beginning of God's chosen people on earth. If we think of God's people on earth as a tree, which Paul does by way of this analogy, then the root of that tree is Abraham, Isaac. And Jacob, 
the Jewish people who come after them are the branches, the natural branches of that tree. Now, the problem that Paul is addressing by way of this analogy and throughout this whole last doctrinal section is this. Currently, some of those branches of Israel have been cut off, as he says in verse 17. Some of the branches were broken off. Now, Paul's been saying this all along in this last section, these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, that the Jews have not obtained the salvation that God has provided for them. They rejected it. They turned away from it. They stumbled over the rock that he established for their foundation being Jesus Christ. We see this at the end of chapter 9. We see it in chapter 10, verse 16. And as we just read in verse 11 of this chapter. In the analogy, these unbelieving Israelites are branches that God has broken off from the tree. In other words, what Paul is saying is that for the most part, his fellow Israelites have rejected their true heritage. A heritage handed down to them from their forefather, Abraham. Abraham was a man chosen by God. <coughs> Excuse me. A man rightly related to God. A man who knew the salvation of God through faith. Through faith. He's the taproot of the tree of God's chosen people on earth. Yet the Jews of Paul's day, as is true for most Jews today, those who belong to Abraham's natural lineage, who, to use Paul's analogy, are the natural branches of the tree, have been cut off from the true people of God. They have forsaken their true spiritual heritage. How? Why? Well, Paul addresses that question in verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. We've said it before, but it merits saying again and underscoring. God's grace does not flow through bloodlines. It didn't for Abraham and his offspring. And it doesn't today for the children of believers. God's salvation comes by grace. It's received only by faith. And that's true no matter who your natural father is. The Jews of Paul's day missed this. This point continues to be missed today. I mean, there are many of you here today who have a wonderful spiritual heritage. You have parents who walked with Christ. Our grandparents or great-grandparents who live for Jesus wholeheartedly. That is your heritage. You can point to them in your family tree and you can demonstrate the ways that they serve the Lord in their day. They knew the Lord Jesus. They walked with God. They loved Christ. And their blood is coursing through your veins. Yet you have not followed their spiritual footsteps. You're related to them biologically. But you have not submitted yourself to Christ as Lord as they submitted themselves to Christ as Lord. And you've forsaken your heritage. You've been blessed to have such a heritage. But you've squandered it. And now you're living cut off from God. Why? Because of your unbelief. Because you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and like your forefathers trusted in the person and work of Christ. 
Children, young people, this is so important. If you're in this church as a child or a young person, God has been kind to you. He's given you people in your life that care enough about your soul to have you taught the ways of Christ. And many of you have parents, you have grandparents alive today, you have great-grandparents who love you, who pray for you, and who themselves are seeking Christ, have sought Christ. And you've been given a great blessing. But make no mistake, the salvation that God has given to your ancestors, those in your family tree, does not flow to you simply because you're their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren. Don't squander your blessing. Follow your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents as they follow Christ. And as they trust the Lord Jesus, you trust the Lord Jesus. And as they've determined to live for Christ, and many of them have lived for Christ for most of their lives, you resolve right now, today, to follow after them by trusting in Jesus and living for him as well. The salvation that we all need that God gives is received only through faith. So whether or not you have a godly ancestry, as you trust Jesus Christ today, you can leave a legacy and a testimony of faith and God's grace working that in your own heart to those who come behind you. So Israel has a gracious history, Paul says, a glorious history. But not only that, he goes on in verses 23 and 24 and points out Israel also has a hopeful future. There's a future for them. He makes this point using the analogy of grafting branches onto a tree. Now, I just need to say at this point that when Paul is using this analogy, he he is speaking, obviously, analogically. Paul's not giving us a lesson on horticulture here. And many people have stumbled and messed up their understanding of Paul's meaning because they've tried to take this analogy of a tree and root and branches and make every little detail fit into some scheme or system of understanding. Well, Paul's not doing that. He's using a general analogy to make a very important theological point about the past, the present, and the future of corporate Israel. So he writes in verse 23, And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, God has the power to give Israel a saving, hopeful future. Now, again, to my earlier point, this is not an analogy that's designed to be pressed in every little detail. Uh, For example, it's not common practice to cut off branches only to graft them back in at a later time. But Paul's not teaching uh, about how to care for trees. He's making a theological point by bringing to our mind's eye this analogy. He is saying God is able to graft Jews back onto the tree of his people. In other words, he's able to save Jewish people by his grace as they have faith in Jesus Christ, just as he saves and has saved Gentiles that way. In fact, 
The fact that Gentiles have been saved is a great encouragement that Jews will be saved. Look at verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, speaking to Gentiles, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, the people of God, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If God can take unnatural branches and make them part of his tree, he can certainly take a natural branch and graft it back into that tree. In fact, it is much more feasible for him to do so than to take a wild olive shoot and graft it into the tree. That's why he says, how much more? The present indifference of Jewish people to the grace of God and the gospel, to his way of salvation through Jesus Christ, is not an obstacle to God's saving purpose. He can overcome their indifference. He can awaken them and draw them to himself. Look at how he has saved people who had none of the advantages that Jews have had throughout history. Brothers and sisters, this is a great encouragement to us to never give up on anyone that we are trying to persuade to become Christian. Anyone that we are witnessing to, anyone that we're trying to to lead them to see the beauty and the goodness and the life that is in Jesus Christ. God has power to save them. Isaiah 59 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. So don't give up and don't doubt God's ability to save. Keep proclaiming the gospel, keep persuading your spouse, your child, your parent, your co worker, your friend to turn from sin and trust Jesus. Furthermore, be encouraged by stopping to consider what God's already done. Look at how, who he has already saved. I mean, he saved you and me, didn't he? He can save anybody. We don't need to look at people and say, oh, well, they'll never be saved. or It's not likely they'll be saved. We're talking about a work of grace by God. We're talking about a work of power by God. And there's nothing too difficult for him. He can save anybody. He can certainly pour out his spirit on the people of Israel in a great revival to save many of them as well. The hope is that many Israelites will be saved in the future. And there are two phrases that Paul uses that give me this hope. The first is in verse 23. He says, and even they, talking about Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And then look at verse 24. He says, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, completely separated, and you were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Salvation is by grace through faith. If Jewish people do not continue on in their unbelief, they will be saved. If they trust Jesus Christ as Lord, they will be saved. Salvation is received through faith plus nothing. That's true for Jew, for Gentile. It's true for you. If you would be saved, if you want to be saved, it is simply by trusting Christ. It's not by turning over a new leaf. It's not by doing anything. It's by receiving what God gives to sinners in his son. Well, the 
natural branches, Paul says, the Jewish people, will be grafted back. This is a note of hope, a note of certainty that only grows in the verses that follow our text, verses 25 through 32. Paul seems to have a great anticipation of the salvation of his fellow Jews. This is the beauty and wonder of God's salvation. It comes to sinners by grace. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift from God. It can only be received through faith. Only as you empty your hands of what you've been clinging to to make your life work. And you turn away from sin and rebellion against God. And you receive the gift that he extends in Christ. Author Robert Persig describes what he calls the Old South Indian monkey trap. It's a trap that consists of a hollowed out coconut chained to a stake in the ground. And the coconut has some rice inside which can be grabbed through a small hole. And a monkey's hand can barely fit through the hole But when he grabs the rice, which he's learned to do all of his life and clenches his fist, he can't bring his hand back out. And suddenly he's trapped. But he's trapped not by anything physical. He's trapped by an idea. He's trapped by a way of living, a principle that up to that point in his life has served him well. What is that principle? When you can grab rice, you hang on tight. And yet that would become the monkey's undoing it's a fitting picture for the way many people refuse to trust jesus christ and be saved maybe that's you where you just cling tight to something that you become so accustomed to a way of living a course of of thinking and ordering your life that is contrary to the way of jesus and god sets christ before you and he calls you to receive life in christ but you can't let go of this way of living, this way of thinking. And so your way of living becomes lethal. It's deadly. It'll keep you from life everlasting. What God calls you to do, friend, is to open your hand. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You simply must receive what God freely gives. And if you will receive Christ Jesus as Lord, then you will experience the salvation that he has come to provide for all who trust in him. Well, Israel had a gracious history. Israel also has a hopeful future. But between these two points of looking back and then looking forward, Paul issues a warning to Gentile Christians in verses 18 through 22. And the warning consists in this, be humble toward each other and fearful toward God. Be humble toward each other and fearful toward God. In verses 18, 19, and 20, he says, do not be arrogant toward unbelievers, specifically Gentiles who are trusting Christ, are not to be arrogant toward Jewish people who are not trusting Christ. That God included Gentiles, the whole world in his saving purposes, is a staggering display of grace. Paul describes us in Ephesians 2, who are not Jews, as aliens, strangers to God. We had no claims to God at all. We were like the wild olive branches. And God 
grafted us into his own people. And that reality should amaze us. Should amaze us. If you're a Christian, you should be stunned that God would make you a Christian. And that reality that he has shown grace to you in this way takes away any ground that we could ever want to stand on to arrogantly look down upon others who have not experienced God's grace. That's true of all Gentile Christians with regard to Jewish people. It's also true of every Christian regarding anyone who is not a Christian. We were like branches of a wild olive tree. We've been grafted in. How unfitting it would be for us to boast as if somehow we were superior to others. Paul says, remember, the root supports you. You don't support the root. True, branches were broken off in order to graft you in, verses 19 and 20. True enough, Paul says, but remember, verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief. You were not grafted in because you're so smart, because you're superior, better to others. You stand fast through faith, through believing, through receiving Christ. There's no room for arrogance in a Christian's life. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is nothing. He goes on, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Brothers and sisters, this is a a quality of life that we ought to be cultivating all the time. It is specifically true as we think about Attitudes toward Jewish people. History's filled with opposition and hatred expressed toward Jewish people. Even among some who consider themselves Christians, it's not hard to find, even today, wicked anti Semitic prejudice. But hear it clearly such attitudes have no place in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. The scripture says, Do not be arrogant toward those who are cut off from his grace due to unbelief. While we're not to be arrogant toward unbelievers, we are to be fearful toward God. Verse 20, the end, he says, so do not become proud, but fear. Look at verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God's treatment of his wayward old covenant people is a lesson for us. God will not be mocked. If you refuse to trust God by receiving Christ Jesus through faith, you can expect him to deal severely with you. It is a fearful thing to abuse God's grace. The grace and kindness that God gives to us to bring us to salvation must be continued in daily as we follow Christ. We not only are saved by grace initially, we are kept by grace throughout all our lives. We must live by grace, which means we must live by faith, taking God at his word, believing what he says, doing what he commands. Repenting when we fail, resolving to keep following Christ no matter what the cost or consequences. So we're to have humility toward other people and fear toward God. 
This should be cultivated in our lives. We should look at what Paul sets before us, the kindness and severity of God. Kindness and severity of God. Look at verse 22. He says, note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We live by grace. Verse 23. And even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has power to graft them in again. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Kindness, severity. We see it in the way that he's dealt with his old covenant people. And Paul's calling upon the Gentiles. Recognize this. Mark this. So that you won't be arrogant toward unbelievers. But you will live in fear of God. But where do we see the severity and kindness of God put on its greatest display? Certainly in how he's dealt with his old covenant people. But even more clearly, brothers and sisters, we see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see God's kindness and severity when his son, the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son. Took the place of sinners and took sin upon himself. God didn't spare even the son of his love. In punishing sin. Behold the severity of God in the death of Jesus Christ. How can we think rightly about the death of Jesus on the cross and trifle with sin? And treat sin like it's not that big a deal. We're not thinking rightly, as Paul is said it before us, of the severity of God. But in the cross, we also see the kindness of God. The grace and the mercy of God. That his own son would come and take our place. That he would be willing to step in the place of those who are rebels against God, who deserve God's wrath and absorb that wrath in himself so that we might go free. Behold the kindness of God. How can you consider what God has done for sinners in Christ on the cross and refuse to come to him to taste and to experience that grace and kindness in Jesus? If you're going to fear God, if you're not going to be arrogant toward people, you must live close to the cross. Because in the cross, we see both God's severity and his kindness. Well, God has not finally rejected Israel. If any Jew or Gentile will turn from sin and trust the Lord Jesus, they will be saved. Israel has a gracious past the father of the earthly race found favor in God's sight, not because Abraham was so special, but because God is so kind and gracious. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Because salvation has always been by grace through faith, Israel has a hopeful future. Why? Because the promise is sure. If anyone will turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord, they will be saved. And the great hope is that God will yet do a wonderful work of opening the eyes of many and cause them to do just that to the praise of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. <clears throat>
Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way you reveal to us your work in the world, your work throughout history, giving us glimpses into the future. We long for the day when your spirit will be poured out on this earth and when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Help us to live for that day. Help us to cry out to you for that day. We ask that you would humble us now in this church that we might live for that day. Deliver us from arrogance. Grant to us renewed fear. Fear of you. Help us to consider both your severity and your kindness as we cling to Jesus Christ and follow after him. Seal to our hearts the truths from your word today, we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.